When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Soundtrack Show with David W. Collins is about to begin. While the first hour of Jaws is about an unseen menace terrorizing Amity Island, the second half takes place at sea. What unfolds is a musical drama filled with action, adventure, and the emerging human spirit that ultimately defeats the shark. This is The Soundtrack Show. so I can hire a contractor. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do that without... I'm going to hire Quint to kill the shark. Martin. Martin. My kids. Well, that be true. Hello and welcome to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins. On this episode, we're breaking down the film score contained in the second half of the movie Jaws, a Universal Pictures release from 1975 directed by Steven Spielberg, still in his 20s at the time, with music by John Williams. We're starting our adventure today with Chief Brody, oceanographer Matt Hooper, and a professional shark catcher named Captain Quint. They all prepare to set sail out into the open sea to kill the shark that has been claiming human victims around Amity Island. What we're going to find in this episode is a score that explores the light side, the the good side, Humankind's spirit as it fights a natural killing machine. It's funny, I remember re-watching Jaws as an adult uh, when DVDs were a new thing, and I was so taken by this second half. Here are some things that really surprised and totally delighted me about a score that's often overshadowed by the shark's motif, and I hope this surprises and delights you as well. First, the emergence of themes, character themes, character motifs. We discussed in the last episode that this is John Williams' first neoclassical score in a then-modern setting, i.e. it's not a Western like his score for the Cowboys or a costume drama like Jane Eyre or the Reavers. It's present day. Well, present day, 1975, but you know what I mean. The point, there are themes, real character themes that are emerging, and they're woven throughout the second half. We're going to break those down. The second observation I made is that the nature of these themes are actually really lighthearted. I mean, almost childlike at times. They're more akin to a swashbuckling pirate movie than a horror movie. And the third observation I made is the placement of music is so clever. If you remember Spielberg's quote about John Williams being a genius because of where he decided to not place music as well. Where it's placed and where it isn't, it, uh, it builds suspense and tension it helps us feel the character's confusion. 
or their stress, sometimes their panic. And its lack of music at times even gives us a sense of ambiguity or neutrality in terms of who to listen to. Do we listen to the brains of the technologically advanced, highly educated Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus, or the brawn of the weathered, worldly, and experienced Captain Quint, played by Robert Shaw? Like Chief Brody, we as an audience are often stuck in the middle in these moments. And that is due, I think, because of the lack of music sometimes. Let's start this whole seafaring adventure at the moment after they've hired Quint, and they're loading up the orca, which coincidentally is named after the only natural enemy of the great white shark. Anyway, Hooper is loading on all of his gear, and skeptical uh, Quint asks him what it is. What is all this stuff? Let's take a listen. What do you got here? Portable shower or monkey cage? Anti-shark cage. Anti-shark cage. <laughs> you go inside the cage? Hooper nods. Cage goes in the water. Nods again. You go in the water. Shark's in the water. Our shark. Now listen to this. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you ladies of Spain. Just singing it. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. <laughs> and Hooper's just left mystified as Quint is laughing at him going into the cabin of the orca. This is just the beginning of the movie's introduction to sea shanties. Quint sings this old sea shanty called Spanish Ladies or Spanish Lady, and the melody goes like this. Why is this important? Well, it's not its only appearance. Note here that Quint uses it to signal to Hooper that if he uses that thing, it's probably going to kill him. You're in the water. Shark's in the water. As if to say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, Hooper. What are you thinking? You're, you're going to die. We're going to come back to this later, but remember that. Spanish ladies, and remember that melody and that moment. I want to play you the scene where they finally set out to sea. Just listen to how drastically the music changes as the orca leaves port here. This Quint is just, like, yelling this crazy stuff out there. And then you see the expanse of the ocean as the water is red from the chum that, that uh, Brody is putting in the water. All right, so wait a second. Let, let's, let's back up here a second. got to stop this. That was totally out of character for this movie so far. Well, wait, was it? I mean, we're only halfway through the movie, but to me it seems like John Williams is doing two things here. One, he's giving us a moment of humor a moment to feel good about being among other people, maybe a moment to breathe and say, you know, this might all be okay. And, it, it, you know, to me, it's almost reminiscent of Gilligan's Island. You know, this is just, you know, we're just going out for the day. We're just going out for a three-hour tour. 
After all, Brody mentions that he'll buy Quint dinner that night once they're back. I mean, he actually thinks they're coming back that same day. Um, it's funny that Gilligan's Island thing is ironic because Williams himself scored episodes of Gilligan's Island, and it was actually still in heavy syndication when this movie came out in 75. So he's giving us this moment of humor and and uh, and just this lightness that we haven't had in a while. But the second thing he's doing here is he's planting melodies in our heads that he's going to build upon. And we, we heard two right there. The first one was obvious, this, uh, this, this kind of new melody that we're hearing for the very first time. It was this bit right here. If they don't like you going out, they'll love you coming in. <laughs> the second melody is not as obvious. Uh, you hear it it's kind of given in a minor treatment, and then you hear it major the second time, and that's this. Certainly not as sprightly and, and as happily stated as the... Uh, But it's there. We, we heard these two themes as we're leaving port. Let's keep those tunes in mind because we're in for a wild ride coming up here. So now they're out into the water and Brody's been chumming the waters, meaning throwing fish guts out to sea to lure the shark. And Quint is sitting in a chair at the back of the boat with a giant fishing rod. All is quiet as Brody is trying to learn how to tie a knot and become a sailor. And then suddenly the fishing pole starts to tick. Now, we've been without music for a bit since we left the port, you know, as they've just been kind of talking and they've been on the boat out at sea. No music. But then suddenly, let's hear how Williams handles this scene as the rod starts to tick here. There it is. Low, ominous chord. Ticks again. Another low ominous chord, and Robert Chalk gives this great look out of the side. You know, gives it this like side eye. And he slowly starts to prepare himself. He puts on these shoulder straps, and he puts his feet in place, and he takes the pole and, and he puts it in a little harness. He knows something's coming. Quint, clearly here, thinks he has the shark. And we're hearing music, so we think he's onto something. He's the only one that knows so far. Still putting it all together. I'm skipping forward for time here. Hey! I got it! And then suddenly, the line goes rushing out to sea. Get behind me, get behind me. But notice the music is gone. No music until it disappears, and he realizes that whatever it is he's caught has gone under. I don't know, Chief. I don't know. He's very smart, very dumb. He's gone under. He's gone under the boat. I think he's gone under the boat. But then listens yeah, as the easy. music disappears he's again. smart, big fish. He's gone under the boat. Keep it steady now. I got something very big. I don't think so. Chief. Hooper Chief. is not convinced. Put your gloves on. You put your gloves on, both of you. Ah, oh, when the engine is cut. 
Getting ready to run out again. You can really hear that silence. You can really hear that there's no music. Now, what's interesting is eventually the uh, the line is cut, and he pulls it up, and there's nothing. There's nothing but a bitten off or perhaps just broken off piece of fishing line. Um, so interesting there. When that music disappears, is it because the shark is going down into the depths? Or was there any shark at all? Did he catch the shark on the line? Is Hooper right? Is Quint right? Presumably Quint was right because he had a fishing line as heavy as a piano wire on that pole, and it was snapped in half. Uh, Hooper retorts that that doesn't mean anything. Well, what does the composer have to say about it? It's ambiguous. There's no shark motif at all here. There's practically no music really to speak of. And now, this is just my opinion, but I, for one, interpret this scene as being totally inconclusive. Quint is convinced. Hooper is not. Both present their case. But like Chief Brody, who's the only non-seafaring expert on board, we as an audience are left confused. I mean, after all, we haven't had a good look at this thing yet. I mean, we haven't even seen the shark, really, except for one little shot in this movie. So we don't really know what we're talking about here yet in terms of what we're up against. So was it totally insane for Quint to try and catch a shark with a fishing line? I mean, it sure didn't work out for those two fishermen on the dock who tried it a while back in the first half of the movie. So we're already conditioned to think that Quint is foolish for trying. The lack of music is very important here. We have to ask ourselves, do we have confidence in our captain, Captain Quint? Or is Hooper the one to listen to? I mean, it's tense on board the Orca right now, to say the least, right from the start. Moving on, after this incident, it's quiet again until the late afternoon when Quint orders Chief Brody to start chumming the waters yet again. So yet again, he's putting fish guts over the water. And what follows is perhaps the greatest musical sequence of the entire film, The Barrel Chase. This is Quint's second plan of attack to capture the shark after the fishing line didn't work out. On the deck of the orca, we see several yellow barrels attached to ropes. His plan is to shoot the shark with a harpoon gun. The harpoon is attached to a rope, which is attached to a flotation barrel. Now, this is meant to help slow the shark down and keep it from diving because of the barrel acting like a buoy on the surface and to help them track the shark and eventually capture and kill it. And for our knowledge, we also know that this is a great sequence that Spielberg cooked up in order to shoot his movie because there's no shark. He doesn't have a shark. It's not working. It's an action scene between a boat and barrels, yet it turns out to be one of the greatest scenes in the movie. I'm going to play most of it for you as presented in the movie, but uh, I'm going to give a musical commentary as we're running. And before we play it, I want us to listen for a few things. One, we'll obviously hear the shark motif. Uh, as his dorsal and tail fins are visible above the water at the top of the sequence, there's no doubt that the shark is present this time. Two, and this is the real uh, interesting part here, I want us to listen for themes. I'm going to make some observations to you and share what I believe these themes represent. I'll then support my case with scenes from the movie. But I want to review this first theme. I believe that this is a theme for Captain Quint. Spanish lady aside, we'll talk about that later, this theme is his seafaring bravado theme, his career as a shark catcher, his dominating spirit. Uh, we'll, we'll bring Spanish ladies, like I said, the tune that he hummed at Hooper. We'll bring that back later. Then there's this theme.
it develops over time. I'm going to state here that I think this is a theme for Chief Brody. It takes time to develop throughout the movie, and ultimately, as we'll hear, it emerges as the victorious theme at the end. And then there's one last theme. I think that's a theme for Hooper. We have these three themes constantly dancing and playing around each other. And what's interesting is when you watch this scene and you look at the exchanges between these three characters, the themes very closely echo them. Let's listen to how Williams plays these themes, uh, the incredible style that he introduces to this film, and how he chases the action with shifting moods. Uh, Like I said, I'm going to call out the themes as we hear them. So let's play this. This is The Barrel Chase. Slow ahead, if you please. You heard him? Slow ahead. So Brody is annoyed. He's chumming the water. And this is our first really good look at the shark here on the close-up of Brody. Slow ahead. I can go slow ahead. Come on down and chum some of this. And we get a stinger with the shark's first appearance. Terror. Pure terror. And then one of the most famous lines in movie history. You're going to need a bigger boat. Ah, there's kind of a solemn version of Quint's theme. Talking about boat, talking about the orca. And the shark's motif. They can see the shark. Fully stated. First time we've had it this bold in a while. And this is going to be the first time that any of them get a really good look at this thing as it passes by the boat. Floating above water, almost presenting itself to them. That's a 20-footer. 25. Three tons on them. Now, for the first time, we know what we're up against. And now we get this really cool... You're gonna need a bigger boat, right? ...rhythmic action piece here. Gotta get a work. In the low and high strings. How do we handle Very syncopated. He's circling the boat. Hooper, he's circling the boat. You hear Hooper's theme. You also hear Quint's theme slowly stated in the low strings. Amity Point Light Station to Orca. This is Amity Point Light Station to Orca. <laughs> Cameo by Steven Spielberg with Arger, the voiceover. Come in. I have Mrs. Martin Brody here. Put her on. Come on, Martin, Martin, move, move, move. I'm not going out there. Beyond the edge of the barrels. Go into the end of the barrels. Further out. What? Further out. Why? <laughs> go further out. What for? Will you go to the end of the pulpit, please? What? Will you please go to the end of the pulpit. What for? I need to have something in the foreground to give it some scare. <laughs> Cooper's theme is he's trying to get a nice picture of the shark. Brody, he's fishing. He just got a couple of stripers. We'll bring him in for dinner. We won't be long. We haven't seen anything yet. Oh, her out. I need to stay here. I'm begging you. Martin, God damn it. Come here. Come here, darling. Beautiful. Reeve, I want you to get up on the bridge. Just take a forward steady. I've never seen a boat in my life. Just watch my hand. Take a steady, Mr. Hooper. That's right. Calling for Brody to take it steady. 
You hear Brody's theme. Calls for Mr. Hooper, you hear Hooper's theme. Skipping ahead. And he successfully shoots the shark. And the barrel goes over. Hooper's theme. Followed by Quinn's theme. As they're arguing. Boat turns. Now listen to this fanfare. Unbelievable. Hooper. Hooper. But then the barrel goes under, and you're left with Hooper's face. And you hear Hooper's theme as his heart sinks along with the shark. The shark's gone. And we skip forward in time into sunset. This, by the way, is Steven Spielberg whistling uh, in the exact same session that they did the uh, marching band. They recorded Spielberg whistling for Captain Quint. Wow. Boy, they really thought they had that shark, but the shark went under. So the barrel plan, along with the fishing plan, didn't work. The shark's too strong. They lost him. There's a lot to go over here, but how about those themes? All interweaving. And those soaring melodies. And that almost pirating music. I had always wanted to be in business with John Williams all my life. And when he said yes to Sugarland, we became friends. And obviously, I wanted him to do every picture I ever made. And Jaws came second. And when John saw the movie... He called me up on the phone. He said, this is like a pirate movie. And he said, I think we need pirate music for this because this is, this is it's primal, but it's also fun and entertaining. My favorite cue in Jaws has always been that barrel chase where the shark approaches the boat and they harpoon the animal and he takes the line out and the, and the barrels lift off the boat and the music accelerates and becomes very exciting. The boat turns to follow the shark as he's pulling the line out and the music becomes very heroic and there's a Corngolian fanfare, if you like, of, of triumph as, they ch as they're going through the waves chasing the shark. There it is. Suddenly the shark dives down, the music deflates and gets slower and slower and soft. The deflation and disappointment of, of the realization that the shark hasn't been captured, it's all, all illustrated in this one area where the music is able to follow all that dramatic outline and, and punctuate it. There it is from the composer himself. This idea that the music follows and helps us track the emotions of these characters. That you go from, from terror, from when Brody sees the shark uh, while he's chumming the waters, and then you go into this action sequence. It's like a call to action, and they suddenly mobilize. Um, they all play a part, and um, they're actually able to harpoon the shark. And the music shifts to this heroism 
this this unbelievable uh, swashbuckling music as the ship turns, and of course after that it it deflates. Um, but he mentioned that the music becomes corn goldian. Oh, what does that mean? What he's referring to here is one of the great classic Hollywood composers, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, an Austrian-born composer who was already famous for his operas and concert works when he came to America at the request of Warner Brothers in the 1930s to score several movies, the most famous of which are associated with an actor named Errol Flynn, including Errol Flynn's first ever movie, Captain Blood, from 1935. Let's take a listen to the opening credits of Captain Blood and see if you can find some similarities here. Huge adventure, huge call to adventure. Here's another one. Uh, This is called The Seahawk. It's another swashbuckling pirate movie that helped establish that genre in the 1930s and 40s. And this is actually from 1940. This is The Seahawk, also starring Errol Flynn. So all of these have this uh, this presentational heroic style. This this they almost sound like the melodies of the sea shanties. This this kind of um, very diatonic, uh, melodic sense to them. Very heroic, all kind of in a major key. It just has that swashbuckling classic feel. Korngold is a tremendously influential composer, and we will absolutely talk about him. We have to talk about him at length in a later episode. Um, this is something that I plan to do since not only is his own story totally captivating, the story of Korngold himself, and not only is his music absolutely glorious, as you heard, but he had a tremendous influence on this neoclassical period that we're entering here on John Williams, on James Horner, Jerry Goldsmith, Alan Silvestri, and many others who created genre movies that we still celebrate today. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. But back to Jaws. To reference Korngold in this movie, in 1975, is a totally refreshing and unexpected tonal shift in this movie after what we've seen in the first hour. Yet you heard Williams. It was instinct. He immediately saw the fun on the screen and wanted to bring that flavor to this movie along with the shark's motif. You know, I can't help, when I think about this, I can't help but think about what he said about his clarity, the clarity he gained after such deep personal loss. And again, it's pure speculation, but with Jaws, he's making bold choices without questioning them. He knew from his first screening that this was a direction he wanted to take. And when you let us feel such a high, like those three characters felt during the barrel chase, the inevitable low feels even lower. And that's exactly what happens next in the movie. That evening, the men are inside the ship's cabin, and they've started drinking. Especially the two men that, that you know, have been antagonizing each other, Quentin Hooper. They start comparing battle scars, and eventually Brody 
inquires about the one that's on Quint's arm. By the way, Brody, you know, he thought he was just going to be out for a day. So he was just, I mean, his heart sank when he realized that they were, they were going to be out there all night and into the next day. But uh, he inquires about the tattoo on Quint's arm. It's actually, actually, it's a scar. And, he, and it used to be a tattoo and it was removed. And when he asks what it is, Quint shares that it's the USS Indianapolis. Actor Robert Shaw delivers the monologue of his career at this point in the movie. Recalling the night of June 29th, 1945, which is, in reality, it actually took place on July 30th, 1945, but on with the story. The USS Indianapolis, in real life, was struck by a torpedo from a Japanese submarine in 1945, and it sank in 12 minutes. There were almost 1,200 people on board, and 300 went down with the ship when it sank, and the remaining 900 had to face the danger of the open sea, including exposure, dehydration, uh, saltwater poisoning. But the most dangerous, and at least I should say actually the most terrifying of all, they faced shark attacks. This actually happened. Of the 900 that went into the water, only 316 survived. So this scene is a turning point for our characters and for us, the audience, because we feel sympathy for Quint for the first time. As he's telling this story about going down with the Indianapolis, we see his point of view. We now know why he's so rough around the edges. I mean, this man has survived hell. And actually, like Hooper has been obsessed with sharks for his entire life. Well, not really fascination, that's Hooper's. Instead, it's more like he's got this vendetta against sharks because of what he went through on the Indianapolis. And this vendetta is one that will eventually, as we'll see, get him killed. Now, due to time, I can't play the monologue, but there's something to note about this monologue, this tale that he tells. There are two references to, you guessed it, the Spanish lady or Spanish ladies, uh, that sea shanty that he sang earlier. The first reference is buried in the in the eerie background music, almost like a like it's this whole tone version of the tune that is is just starting to emerge, like this um, this dark memory surfacing. The second is that he sings the tune directly after he finishes the story. So this undoubtedly ties that sea shanty, that melody, Spanish ladies, to the dark horrors of Quint's past on the Indianapolis. It represents his scars, and even as we find out, it represents his madness. Even though Hooper tries to lighten the mood with a rendition of Show Me the Way to Go Home, and, uh, and uh, they start all singing along, it's actually a really nice moment where they're all bonding, their celebration is completely interrupted by the shark, who starts ramming the ship, flooding the engine with salt water. And this marks the beginning of their problems. It's the middle of the night. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, but after dealing with the shark in the morning and dealing with engine repairs, they begin a second barrel chase. And clearly it's not working. And Chief Brody has had enough, right? So right in the middle of this uh, sequence where there's a shark motif playing, the music is playing, and while Quentin Hooper are trying to deal with that shark, Brody decides to use the radio to call in the Coast Guard for help. The engine is damaged and Quint's methods aren't working. Well, in response, Quint, Captain Quint, grabs a baseball bat, goes into the cabin where Brody is on the radio, and he uses the bat and smashes the radio to bits, thus eliminating any chance that Brody or anyone 
can call for help. Not that there's any time to chew them out. The shark is coming back, and we enter our second great musical barrel chase sequence. Let's take a listen. I'm going to make a phone call. So he's going to go, uh, <laughs> he's going to go use the radio. Coast Guard, this is the Orca. Do you read me? And sure enough, here comes Quint. Coast Guard, this is the Orca. Do you... <laughs> the music stops right as the baseball bat hits the radio. Excuse me, Chief. That's great! That's just great! Now where the hell are we, huh? Brody loses it. They're all starting to crack. You're certifiable, Quint, you know that? You're certifiable! Hooper says, Oh, boys. I think he's come back for his noon feeding. And there's the shark motif. Hook me up another barrel! So, once again, they try and shoot it with a barrel. Skipping ahead. And they get a, a second barrel in. Now, the barrel just kind of chases along the water here. And it almost, the visual of that, it almost looks like this yellow barrel is like water skiing along the surface, and you get this wonderful bright music from John Williams. A momentary glimpse of hope. Full throttle, get me right up alongside it! They can't rip it up that high, it's not gonna take it! So skipping ahead for a time, eventually they get two barrels attached and come up with a bright idea to wrap the ropes around the cleats on the back of the boat. This doesn't end well. The shark rips the cleats off, opening up a hole below the deck in the process, and the ship slowly starts to take on water. In this next sequence, we hear the shark starting to chase them as they decide to head for the shallows, as they decide to head for land. Shark's got three barrels on it, and it's just struggling and struggling and struggling, and the boat is just filling with water. And they all just look at each other in total terror. Huge stress. The barrels resurface. Skipping ahead. So interestingly enough, the shark starts to chase them. You can feel John Williams giving us the dread of these three men on this boat. He's chasing us, I don't believe it. Gonna draw him into the shadows. Draw him in the shallow water, gonna draw him in and drown him. We're heading in, Brody. Christ. You hear Quint's theme in the low strings there. The shark's chasing them, chasing them, chasing them. Have you ever had a great white dude? No. And then it just disappears. And Quint starts whistling. He's whistling Spanish ladies. Eventually, he starts to sing Spanish Lady. I, and this is where you start really getting the sense that he is starting to relive the Indianapolis. 
And this uh, this is a constant in the movie, in the script, with the actors, before even John Williams gets it. But listen to what John Williams does with it eventually. By the way, notice the shark motif disappeared when the shark disappeared. Spatial perceptive function. Starting to lose it. Now, as they realize that the, the engine is dead and totally fried, they're trying to put out the engine fire. And what do you get as Quint is looking around and he sees the life jackets? Listen to what John Williams does here. There's Spanish Lady. Quint has been in this situation before. He knows that the ship is going to sink and that he's going to have to put on a life jacket just like he did in 1945 once again. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. So desperate, Quint entertains Hooper's shark cage idea, the one that he brought on board that he made fun of at the start of the journey. And we have more evidence for a theme for Hooper as they start to put it together. Here they are talking about the shark cage. But if I can get him close enough to this cage, I think I could get him in the mouth or that the eye. shark put that cage to pieces. You got any better suggestions? And then they start building it. And listen to this theme. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I feel like that's a theme for Hooper. So the shark cage plan doesn't work out. Again, skipping ahead for time. Quint was right. Uh, the shark makes really short work of that cage. But luckily, Hooper, in full scuba gear, dives for safety. And as they raise the shark cage, there's no music. In fact, this is really interesting. In this next sequence, there is no music in Quint's death, the raising of the shark cage, the ship sinking, anything. Just no music except for this one little low tremolo here in the low strings as the shark starts to approach the boat. Here, you can hear it creep in here. And here comes the shark. And the shark beaches itself on the back of the boat, ripping the back of the boat apart. And it goes sinking into the water. With the shark on the deck. And this is, of course, where Quint slips and he is eaten by the shark, and his entire gruesome death has no music. It's almost like documentary style. It's an interesting choice not to have music there, because the shark is right there. And, you know, previously, uh, the shark has, has always been signaled by music, but now that you actually have the shark on the screen, the, the biggest presentation of Bruce, the mechanical shark, there is no music. You can see it there plain as day as it eats Quint, and they just let... The sound effects and the actor's performance do the work. Very, very, very interesting. Why? I imagine that it's just too much with music. It's just too much. And how do you play Quint's death? Do you play it tragically? Do you play it uh, in a scary way? I think that this is a smart decision to just let it play without music. It just happens. Um, it's almost more horrible that there's no music because for the first time you're seeing the shark attack. If you go back to Chrissy, for example, 
at the beginning of the movie, you don't see the shark attack, just like you don't see the knife in the shower scene in Psycho. You just have the music doing the work. The same was true at the top of this movie. But now you're seeing it. You're seeing all of it and all of its horrible glory here. Um, so there's no music. And again, moving forward, he gets that this, that's the shot where he gets dragged into the water after he's dead. Skip past that screaming, that awfulness here. Brody fights to survive as the ship is going under. And it's and water's coming in through the window, and suddenly the shark's nose comes through the, through the glass. And he has to fight it off. He's eventually able to throw a scuba tank at it, of course. And he starts climbing into the crow's nest. Grabs a rifle, climbs into the crow's nest. And the music comes back in. The shark is out there in the distance. And it's going to circle back around and start coming towards Brody. The ship is almost completely underwater now. He is almost at sea level. And listen to what you hear. Brody's theme fully realized. The human spirit fully realized. Almost pretty for a moment as you're looking at the expanse of the ocean. Skipping ahead. Show me the tank. Show me the tank. Blow up. He starts taking shots at it because he knows the tank is in the shark's mouth and remembers that it's pressurized. This is the big moment, the most tense moment of the entire movie. Smile, you son of a. music stops and then comes in as the shark explodes into pieces. Now you get this wonderful descending music, beautiful music against the horrific visual of the shark carcass falling into the water. By the way, this is very reminiscent of the uh, semi's death in uh, Spielberg's first movie, Duel. Including that uh, animal yell there. Now, as they uh, paddle away, the end credits music features once again Brody's theme. Let's check it out. Very nice piece. We get in on those. Very relaxed. We all need it. We all need to relax after being going through such a stressful ordeal here. Now, moving forward, listen to what melody emerges. There it is. So as you watch the movie, you know, whether or not it's a theme for Quint or it's a theme for the Orca uh, remains to really be known. And, and you can, there's always a danger to take these things too literally in terms of assigning themes to people. However, there really is a strong case to be made for this theme being Brody's 
uh, Hooper having his own theme and where it shows up, and then Quint having this kind of sailor shanty theme of his own, and then the Spanish lady theme being uh, the horrible memory of the Indianapolis and almost the dies irae or doom and gloom of this movie. Um, but uh, take a listen to it when you watch the movie and see if you if you come to that same realization. I'm always interested in hearing from people and what they think, whether they agree or disagree. I think debate is one of the best parts of doing this and talking about all of this in general. Um, but this is my take on on the movie, and, and I think it's really interesting to follow. And it's how uh, it's how I perceive all of these characters to be interacting with each other, and the movie to be interacting um, and kind of using the story, using music as a storytelling tool. And I don't know about you, but that cathartic rush of Brody's victory over the shark is just incredibly strong at the end of this movie. I mean, I feel relief. I feel this uh, this uh, need to start whooping and hollering when the shark explodes. I mean, you have to have that heroic music at the second half of this movie, that feel-good, that swashbuckling, melodic music. You know, it's interesting because Jaws is not really known for this part of the score. I mean, we're aware of it, but it's not nearly as famous as the shark's motif. Um, but perhaps the pirate music, as I'm calling it, is what makes the shark music so effective. One makes the other stand out in even higher relief, creating even more uh, terror by contrast. Here's a letter that I received. I want to give you a little listener feedback here. This is a letter from Jeff, who has an interesting story about how ingrained this shark motif is in our culture. My main reason for writing is to tell you a story after listening to your latest episode about Jaws. A few years ago, when my daughter was four or five, we were swimming, and I got down low in the water and started coming toward her and said, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. She screamed, Ah! Shark! I was blown away. How did she know that? She had certainly never seen the movie. She's seven now and still not at all ready to see it. I had never told her about the movie, as far as I know. And as far as I know, she'd never heard the music either. I wasn't acting like a shark and wasn't even really trying to be scary, but she instantly made the connection. It still boggles the mind. After all these years, Jaws is so deeply integrated into our culture that many people know details about it even if they have never seen the movie, which is also true of many films such as Star Wars. It's entirely possible that some other show she had seen made a vague reference that stuck with her. But I think it's also very likely that John Williams' score was so perfect, and in that environment, when I made a spooky two-note sound, her mind couldn't come up with any other idea but a scary shark. Possibly one of countless examples of what a truly musical genius John Williams is. I look forward to the next episode. Jeff. Well, that's a great story. It's funny. You know, you mentioned seeing it in other shows. I actually saw Jaws referenced on Sesame Street recently. I mean, it's clearly a shorthand for shark. It's everywhere. Jaws, for me, represents the beginning of a renaissance of orchestral film scores, with John Williams leading the way. What follows after Jaws are some of the greatest genre movies in film history, all of which contain orchestral scores. Superman, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Back to the Future, E.T., Star Trek, Star Trek II, Three, and of course the classic Star Wars trilogy starting just two years later in 1977. Sure, I want to talk about TV, games, even live theater, but I think it's clear that with movies, there's a lot to talk about, and we're just getting started. 
And what better way than Jaws, an incredible movie, an incredible behind-the-scenes story as well, and one of the most effective film scores of all time. With musical seeds planted, we move on to other film scores in future episodes of The Soundtrack Show. Thank you. Thank you.